Well, let me turn to our passage as we look thinking about these, these people that Paul is going to give two examples. It's actually, a, it's actually called a travel log. It's going to sound like the, like the weirdest section of Scripture to ever preach. No, no preacher going through topically through the Bible would ever pick this passage because it just sounds like a mundane travel log. Like, here, I'm hoping to visit you guys. Here's some people to visit you. But, but really, it's, an, it's Paul's way right in the middle of the letter to Philippians to give them examples of what he's been talking about. He's been talking about Jesus' example to us. Of, uh, he's been talking about his example to the church subtly. He says, he talked about how he's in prison. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die, right? And, but he says, it doesn't really matter to me. I rejoice because whether I live or die, look, Jesus, I'm getting to tell guards about Jesus. I'm about ready to go tell Caesar, the most powerful man on earth, who really is nothing compared to Jesus. I get to go tell him about Jesus. This is awesome. And he might cut off my head for it or torture me to death, but it's all good. Because then if I die, I get to go be with Jesus, which is way great, awesome. Way for, way for Paul, way, celebrate it. He's like, but I don't think that's going to happen because I, because I know it would be better for me to stay and to serve you guys, the church, and help you advance and have more joy in your life. So I think I'll stick around for a little while, wait off on the Jesus party. And, he, and, he, and so he's used himself. It's a way of saying, like, let's live like that. That our focus is Jesus and how, how glorious he is. And then he gives, he lays out Jesus as this wonderful example to us of how, how Jesus served us through his death and resurrection on the cross and how he was exalted to the right hand of the Father. And he's the name by which every name under heaven and earth, will, we will all bow before the name of Jesus one day, not bow before Caesar, we will bow before Jesus. And then, he gives these examples of two people that the Philippians church would know about. And he says, you know, he's kind of saying, you know what? That idea of living for other people and living for Jesus, here's two guys you know, and, and they're doing that too. It would be good to follow their example. And it teaches us a little bit about what story he's going to, he's giving two stories, two examples. It's, it's going to help us think, what story am I living in? What stories do I look up to? What people do I look up to to say, man, I want to live like that person? And are those the examples that would help us become the people God made us to be? And am I going to be that example to some other brother or sister in the world? Okay, so let's look at our passage from Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. I'll put it up on the screen today. I hope in the Lord Jesus, and I hope in, you could say, King Jesus, to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will, genuinely, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they, are, for they all, like they all meaning, you know, most, most Christians, most people, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me and with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. Meaning just as soon as I find out if I live or die. <laughs> and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my needs. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God gave him, God had mercy on him 
and not only on him, but also, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him, the Lord, with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, he's talking about two men, and on the surface, he's talking about, like I said, ordinary travel plans. There's a Timothy. Timothy is a pastor or will become a pastor. And he's, he's, he's Paul's co-worker and spreading the gospel. And he's saying, you know what, as soon as that, Caesar either cuts my head off or he doesn't, I'll still, you know, there'll still be some things to sort out here in Rome. And so before I can come to you or I'm in heaven with Jesus, I'll send him to let you know so that you no longer have to be waiting to find out. But he said, you know, in the meantime, there's this guy named Epaphroditus. You know Epaphroditus because Epaphroditus is the one the Philippian church had sent to literally save Paul's life from starving to death in prison. They don't, they don't feed you in prison. They don't pay for the rent on your house. He got the privilege as a Roman citizen to have his own house, but that was about ready to, all of his money was running out. He was going to be in a Roman dungeon with no food. Just in kind of the nick of the time, the way Paul describes it, Epaphroditus shows up. That's what he means by complete what was lacking in your service to me. It wasn't they lacked. It was that they literally had no way to get him money. There was no Venmo back then, right? There was no, there was no you know, you couldn't send money. You had to actually take money on your actual person and, and go on a boat and, hope, and, and travel and hope you don't get robbed or die. Like, so Epaphroditus didn't know when he says he almost died. He's like being literal here, right? The dude almost died with a whole bunch of cash. <laughs> the guy's coming with like 10 grand in his pockets, you know, maybe more, who knows, of equivalent monies, hoping not to get robbed and killed. And he almost got ill and almost died. So it's no small thing to travel in ancient Rome, right? Even though Rome revolutionized traveling, it still was not like today. And but, he, but they loved Paul and said, we got to risk our lives. we got to find someone who's willing to risk their life. Everybody else didn't put their hands up. Epaphroditus put his hand up. Okay, I'll be the one. And, but he, he's really, so on the surface, there's this travel plans. But like I said, what's really happening is he's saying these are two people who are, who are living out the story of Jesus Christ. That, that this is our calling. We're, we are called Christians. We're called little Jesuses. Our calling is to imitate the story of Christ and find my way to join in the story of Jesus. Not meaning I'm going to save anyone, but I join in. I'm saved and I have a new identity and a new hope. I have a new future and I'm joining in. What is God up to in the world? I love my brother Hank. He encourages me all the time with his, his faith. He's, been, he's a seasoned veteran in the faith. Nothing. He seems un, he's always unflappable to me. In the middle of this pandemic, I sit down with the brother. I can tell him all the craziness that makes me want to go crazy. And he's like, and he'll just be very calmly. I really wonder what God's up to in the midst of all of this. And he just believes it with such a calm assurance that it's like, oh, yeah, that's what I needed to hear. It's not that I didn't know that, but I needed a brother to tell me, you know what? God is working. Let's keep. And if, we're, if there's conflict that doesn't mean the story does not go forward. In fact, conflict is what means you're actually on a real story and a real adventure. Conflict is what makes the story actually worth writing about, thinking about, living in. Have you ever gone to the movies to watch a story that doesn't have any conflict in it? Nope, because those don't make stories. 
Those, uh, th- those don't, nobody writes a story about a dude who works for 40 years at a job, you know, you know and, and then and kind of like lives for the weekends and then dies someday. No, you, you have conflict is what makes the story worth living. But it's also not easy to get through. We're living through times like this. And Paul says, here's two brothers who, who learned what it was like to live out the story, to be able to advance the gospel, and they press through the conflicts that they might bring joy and the love of God to the earth. That's something worth pressing through conflict because we're all going to live in a story. And it's basically a story always is about a character or characters who want something and overcome conflict to get it. You will live in some story. It's just a matter of what do you want and how will you overcome that conflict that's keeping you back from what you want. I was praying this morning. That idea came to my mind. It could be as simple as you want a vacation in Hawaii. If that's what you want, you will overcome conflict to get it, right? But is that the story that you want told about yourself? The story that will make you be alive? I guarantee you, if that is your story, you will get to Hawaii and find it lacking because it wasn't worth that much of your heart. Don't get me wrong, I love Hawaii. I told my wife just this week I want to go to Hawaii. I don't want it so bad that that's the goal of my life. What? So we, I want us to think, as we look at these examples, we're thinking, what kind of character am I, and what do I want, and am I willing to overcome conflict to get it? If I'm not, then I prob- you actually probably haven't identified what you really want, because you will overcome conflict to get what you want, even if that means becoming isolated and pushing off all of the relationships because you just want to be alone. Let's think about today, what does God want for us? What are we made for? We get to see that in these two stories. The first one was Timothy, and we're going to see here very clearly in both the stories, really, and especially in these lines from Timothy, that, that, that he figured out that the only story really worth living in is the story of Jesus Christ. That that is the story that is worth giving your life for, overcoming conflict for, is the story of Jesus he said, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that you may, that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus, of Jesus Christ. I love that line. He's like, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. He's using that language of what you want, of what you're going to live for, right? And he says, and he, and he says, most people are living for their own interests. They're living in their own story. They're living for their, they're building their own kingdom. We might use in biblical language. They're living for their own glory, their own importance. They're, they're thinking, waking up every day. What do I want? But he says, Timothy, I've, there's, I've never found anyone like him. He, he is genuinely living for you and for Jesus Christ. And it's a beautiful thing to behold. It's an example to be followed. He's saying, Timothy, what he wants is, is to, to serve Jesus Christ. If you think about this, this goes back to the fact that we could say Timothy has been paying attention to everything Paul's been teaching in Philippians. He's been walking with Paul, right? And so he's been captivated by the same thing that Paul is trying to help us all be captivated with. And that is the story of Jesus and what he did for us. He wants, 
He's saying the reason why I can say to live is Christ and to die is gain because I know how glorious Jesus is. I know how, I know how there's nothing like living for his glory and having his glory fill my life. I could live for, he's like, there's nothing compares to that. So for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's why you can say I'm in, a, I'm in a prison cell, but you know what? I'm rejoicing because I get to live for Christ right here and share the gospel with people who would never get to hear about the gospel otherwise. Thank you, Jesus. Well, I'm, it just kind of stinks that I'm locked up and I have to sleep with chains on. But you know what? If that's the part of the story that I have to, the conflict I have to overcome, the the suffering of, like, like Christ's suffering that I have to go through so that I might every day get to share the gospel with a new Roman guard who's one day maybe going to be the next general of the, of the Roman Empire. But that's what I have to go through. If I have to risk my life to go share the gospel with Caesar, so be it. Because how else is Caesar going to hear about Jesus from, from right from the mouth of someone who's met the resurrected Jesus? Let's, roll, let's do it. Let's do this, he says. Wow. Why? Because he knows Jesus. Because he's one he's going to say in a few verses later, because I know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. And so I count it joy to be counted, to be joined in his story, so that I might, through joining in his suffering, I might find a, a resurrection like his resurrection, an exaltation into the glory of God like his exaltation. He's like, bring it on. Wow, it's inspiring. He wants us to be inspired. Timothy and Epaphroditus were inspired. Let's look back on that story about Jesus that is calling us to say, join in it. Paul quotes, quotes from a, a common hymn of their day and that summarizes the story of Jesus. And we're going to start in chapter 2, verse 3. I'll show it up here. When he talks about these, they're actually, the reason why I'm reading this section is also because we know that this story about Timothy and Epaphroditus, we know it's meant to be a living illustration because he uses several phrases from this section of Scripture. And he's saying Timothy and Epaphroditus, they're examples of ones who are, are obeying these very commands right here. So in chapter 2, verse 3, he said, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That, could be, that word conceit could be called vain glory, self, self-centered glorification. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Remember, that's the same thing he said about, about Timothy, right? Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So here's he saying, like, be like Christ, live in this story. What's his story? Well, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That goes back to the story of the fall. Tim, Tim did such an elegant job talking about that, that idea of even though Jesus actually is God and he actually is equal with God, he didn't find equality with God something that he had to say, I'm going to hold on to that and say this is my right to be glorified as God in all times and all places, Right? Instead, I will humble myself, take on human flesh, and become found just an ordinary poor human being who will one day be spit on and, and, and beaten and die a shameful death on a cross. Why? Because I don't, he's like, I don't count the biggest thing in life that I, that I can just magnify my glory as being equal with God. The biggest thing in my life is serving the good 
of, of God's creation. Even Jesus is saying, I want to glorify God because God is a trinity. So he can say, as God, he can also say, I want to glorify the Father and the Son. And so Jesus, he's saying, I don't find that something. And so that goes back to the fall because we think about the story of Adam and Eve. And they're, they're made in, as image bearers, right? The highest of creation. There's a, there's, a, there's a glory in us. We're made to receive the glory of God. But, and we have this calling to be God, God's image bearers in the world. God's filling the world with his glory. But Adam and Eve didn't want it more. They didn't count their position as okay. And instead, what did they try to do? They tried to grasp for more. The Satan comes and they say, hey, you know, you could be more. You could, you're not like God. You could be like God if you take this fruit. And now you have knowledge of good and evil. Now you get to decide what's right and wrong. And you get to be your own king. And you get to build your own kingdom. Then you will be like God because you get to create in all these new ways. So they didn't count their their relationship with God as, some, as something that they were satisfied and dependent upon and saying, I'm going to submit to that. But no, they had to grasp for something else. They had to grasp for the fruit and try to become more. And you're holding back on me, God. I deserve more, God. I deserve to be the center, God. I deserve to decide what's right and wrong for me. I deserve to be the, the one who can live my life however I want to be. So they grasped for more. But Jesus wasn't like that. Even though he actually was equal. He says he's such a, it shows us the beauty of humility and looking to others, not yourself. It says he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Right? He says, God, I will trust you. I will be obedient to you. you we, this is the way we are going to bring redemption to the whole world. This is the way we're going to reconcile the world to God. This is the way we're going to fill the world once again with, this, with the new life of the Spirit to bring recreation to all of the world. So yes, I'm going to... Submit to you, Father. I will be obedient to you, Father. I will serve you, Father. I will do that to the point of becoming nothing, becoming a servant, being found in the likeness of just those little, those people that we created. We love, but they're really nothing like us, and they've fallen so far, but let's serve them even though they don't even like us. And they want nothing to do with us. And they want to build all their own rival kingdoms. And if we, were, if we were into our own glory, we would just crush them all like the ants that they are. But we love them and we don't see them as ants. We see them as children of God that have lost their way. We see them as prodigal sons and daughters. So let's go serve them. I will die on a cross for them. For the, it will be my joy to die on the cross for them so they might be saved. And you will raise me from the dead. So the new life might be poured out into all the world, he says. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow. And heaven on earth and under the earth for, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so now Jesus, in a way, by, by going through this, his story, by living it out in real history, Jesus is... He dies on a cross, he's resurrected, and now he's exalted, and he has a new kind of glory. It's not that he was lacking anything, but he has a new glory of being 
the servant king who is now resurrected and is sitting on a throne of, of glory over creation. He's the author of the new creation. He's the king of this new world that he's creating. And every all of us will one day bow before him. And, and Timothy and Paul and Epaphroditus and people like you and me for thousands of years, we've been saying, yes, I don't want to wait till I have to go to heaven and, and face the judgment seats about you. I'm saying you are king. You are Lord. You are, I'm not going to be like Adam and just grasp and say, I'm going to do my own thing. No, I want to go back to where, where I saw you, God, as king. And I, I was dependent. I had your glory in my life. I want to be an image bearer of God who receives your love and knows your love and knows your forgiveness and knows your salvation. And so, so many of us at some point in our life, we said, Jesus, I, I, I bow the knee now because you're worthy. Forgive me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Like, lift, I, I see you, Jesus. You are worthy. You are the king. And you love me. How, how is this so awesome that I bow the knee not to be killed, but I bow the knee because, because you're going to lift me up and resurrect me and give me new life and fill me with your spirit. I, get to, what, I, don't, I don't just get to be some worm in your kingdom, but, but you're going to call me your son? And your daughter, you're going to call me. You're going to say, yes, let's be, let's work together. I get to be on your team, Jesus? Really? Like I'm on the inner circle with you, Jesus? How is that possible? Did you see what I did? Do you see, you, do you know how weak I feel? Do you know how much I still struggle? But Jesus, he keeps being the one who, who when we surrender to him, he, he lifts us up. It's the opposite of what you think. We humble ourselves before God. He exalts us. He fills us with his glory. When we, but it's just like Adam and Eve when we try to grasp for our own glory and say, I'm not going to bow. We destroy ourselves. We destroy ourselves. And we feel so empty, so confused, so alone, so afraid, so ashamed, so guilty. But every one of us knows what it's like to I think today, and you could know it for the first time, to say, Jesus, I surrender to you. I promise it's not what you're thinking. It's exactly the opposite. The way down is the way up in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And Timothy and Paphroditus and Paul and, and, me, and you and me, we, we're, we're living, we're saying, I'm going to live in that story of surrendering to Jesus and being about his kingdom and, and serving others like Jesus Christ because to love and to surrender to Jesus is to, to love and to serve others. Because that's the one we're bowing before us, a servant king who loves people and loved people when they were not into him. We're not giving him any kind of kudos or props or warm, fuzzy feelings about life. And so we, we say, I'll serve people even if they spit on me. Because I was spitting on Jesus at one point. And he loved me. And when I bowed before him, I deserved to be spit on by him. But he didn't do that. He lifted me up and he embraced me. And he gave me a place in his kingdom. And I want to live in that story. That's what he's saying. That's what he says. When he, we're not going to look out to our own interests, but to the interest of Christ and to serving his church. This is our, our story. This is who we are. This is the, this is the thing what, that the people who are living as image bearers of God, they want the glory of God. And they'll overcome all conflict. To say, God, like to say, yes, let's glorify Jesus in all things. I don't care what I have to go through. I will glorify you, Jesus. It's my joy. 
Yes, it will involve suffering, but it is far, it is worth it because I'm in it with Jesus. Amen. If you think about it, we live in a world that's filled with these alternative stories, like Adam and Eve's story of living for your own glory. That vain glory we said. That idea that I, I'm going to live for my own importance and, and thinking about what do I want first. And we don't do it so boldly as to say, I just live for myself. But we do it in so many subtle ways in our life. Where we think, I'm going to, really what I want is to be more comfortable. Or really what I want is this or that. And we, we think about when he's, that, that line where he says to think more about others than yourself. Isn't that so convicting? Because isn't that so hard to do? It's very easy to think about what I myself. It is very hard to think I'm going to come to church and think about others. How, when we have this disease in the American church, I think probably all over the world, of like, of, I don't know how many times I hear, like the way we do church is what do I want? I'm going to find a church that will give me what I want. And, and to be fair, we want to build a healthy church that provides for the needs of, of families in all kinds of ways. But we've lost this, I'm going to come and live out a story and think, I'm here, who can I bless today? And in doing that, I know God will lift me up and I will be filled. And I will receive the, the things that I, that I wanted, all the, all the things I wanted, I will receive those and more because I will receive those in Jesus. Amen? And I think about a story Tim Keller talked about. Uh, he was reading, he reads a lot. He's like a photographic memory. And, and he, he was sharing this, this article that I thought was fascinating from Fast Company, which is like a finance kind of like business magazine. And it was talking about how, how it was talking from a secular writer saying how, how this, our success is killing people. This epidemic to be successful is killing people. And this art, art author said, we believe that success and its cousin money will make us secure, important, and happy. But it's time to tell the truth about the high numbers of people who have used all their means to achieve money, power, and glory, and then self-destruct. Right? And by the way, you might not be all about success, but this is just talking about, this is a symptom of that idea of vain glory, living for yourself. And and, and she's basically saying this is the way we deal with that idea that I'm hungry for God's glory. I was made for God's glory. I was made to live in relationship with God. I was made to receive his worth and value and security and having this freedom of being in relationship with our creator God. But in the absence of that, when I go my own way, there's a huge void that I have to fill with something. And many, many people, and so you might fill that with success or money or fame. You might fill that with romance or love. You might try to fill that with comfort. You might try to fill that with security through gaining money or whatever it might be. But there's this absence that I'm not, there's this feeling that I'm not okay. And I need something to be okay. But I want to be in charge of that thing. I don't want to surrender to let God make me okay. I'm going to find a way to be okay. And so people live their whole lives sometimes shifting from one way to the next of trying to be okay. I'll be okay by getting married. And then you find out, well, that person isn't God. They're not fulfilling the glory hunger of my life. So let's have kids, right? We've talked about it, right? They'll fill my glory hunger. No, not so much. They will worship you like God, but they are also a lot of work, right? And, and I love my kids to death, but they aren't Jesus, Right? 
They're not going to fill or it could be my job and many men in their, in their mid, midlife try to like say, I'm going to make my job and making more money. And then that you do that. And like this article is saying, we, we get, to, get to the end of the rope and we self-destruct. I mean, how, why is it that so many of us are less healthy at 50 than we were at 24? Like the goal was to grow and become more healthy by the time you're 50. But when you're, but what happens is you had 20, you have now 25 years of living for really trying to find glory and being hurt by the world around you and being empty, and you and you end up getting to the end. You're more towards the end of your rope, and it causes all kinds of damage in our lives. And what what Paul is saying is that we were meant, and what Timothy and Epaphroditus are living in is saying, let's live when we live for the glory of God. We find the right order to be satisfied to be fulfilled, and to have purpose and meaning in our life. So think about that. What story are you living in? Are you living in a story that has you at the center to try to get, be more successful, to try to, have, to try to get people to like you, to try to have money, to try to get respect? Some people live for respect. Actually, much crime is done in the world out of a hunger for respect. It's the way... All kinds of things work in gangs and mafia and corruption. I'll kill to be respected. Are you fighting for, are you fighting to just, you know, live the American life and have a good weekend? To have things and have comfort? What story are you living in? This is what this, what Paul is challenging us to say, hey, let's follow these examples and, and start living for the glory of Jesus Christ and for his church. And for the world that, that, that doesn't necessarily know yet, that doesn't know yet that Jesus is king and how loving and how awesome he is. Could we live in such a way that, that it might help people be more interested in knowing about King Jesus and knowing he's not a king like they've ever met before? Knowing he's not like a savior they've ever met before? Could we live in such a way that they might know that love? I, we can if we will surrender and follow the spirit of God and overcome the conflicts that we're going through to live as citizens of heaven. I think about this story and the conflicts these two men went through and how there's this challenge right now. I actually didn't even have this in my sermon. I was praying this morning and I was thinking the element of that we're in right now as in, in the church and in the world is this conflict that we're in, right? And it's killing, it's hurting the church maybe. I don't know if it's hurting or helping. I can't, I, can, I don't know everybody's story, but I know for sure we are in a conflict. And there's a tension, and it really comes down to a tension about what story are you going to live? What, what do you want? People are, are fi- trying to figure out what they want. And I'm, I'm afraid to even give examples right now because it's such a sensitive place. But I'm hearing all the time, I'm he- uh, people are telling me things about their life. And what I hear loud and clear is people are searching for what they want. Which is se- really another way to say what story am I going to really be a part of? And, I'm, and so I want, I want you to prayerfully think today, really, at the end of the day, not just what do I want, because our hearts are deceitful, and we are hurting, and when we're going through tension and conflict, this is a time to say, what, what would glorify Jesus Christ most? That is the story. We are meant to be living for King Jesus. We have to get back to a place saying, I am going to live for King Jesus That is the and we are in conflict. Let's overcome the conflict to live for His story because that is always a victorious story. 
If you're living for one of these other stories that I hear often, and I'm scared, scared to say, I, just don't have enough, I don't have enough guts as a pastor of a small church. It's a big church, I could just say it. Small church, someone's going to be like, you're talking about me. Well, well, I was talking about you. So, <laughs> so you know, so, <laughs> and, uh, and, and here's the thing, like, what, if you live for the, find those other stories that aren't centered on the glory of Jesus Christ, you, first of all, I don't know if you're going to overcome the conflict to get it. Because when we're not living in God's design, that causes all kinds of mess. You might overcome some conflict to go get a story that has more conflict than the one you're living in right now. Right? I love the phrase, everywhere you go, there you are. Like, you can, we can change our life all you want right now, but you are, if it's not Jesus, the Spirit of God transforming you and living for Him, you're not going to get any farther than you are right now. You just might be, you know, different places in life, different circumstances, same person, that's the same character in the wrong story that wasn't ever going to satisfy you to begin with. Same chance to say, to get there, and we'll all love you, and say, there's a chance to, to change stories. But you have that chance today to hit the reset button and say, God, what would most glorify you? How can I, and in the end, let's just be really clear, glorifying Jesus means, means I'm going to surrender to you, Jesus, and I'm going to be willing to start looking at how I can work together with God's church to serve Jesus. That's what, Paul, that's what Timothy and Epaphroditus did. Because we see in Timothy's story that this idea of living out the story is not really maybe how we thought about it because it's not your story, it's not my story, it's Jesus' story that we are all in together. There's no such thing as an individual story. There, none of us are the hero of the story. There's no lesser or minor characters. There's Jesus, he's the hero, and there's all of us in his story working together. If it's not a togetherness, then you're not in his story because he's got a really big family. And what did Paul say about Timothy? He said, he's like a son to me, right? They were in that kind of relationship. This is coming from a culture where, where, a, where he says father-son relationships were very, very important. Like, I'm not going to get all the cultural differences, right? But you would teach your sons, the, you'd literally raise them up to know how to walk in your trade. So you would teach them to be farmers or, or carpenters. Like Jesus learned to be a carpenter from his dad, you know, and Paul learned how to be a, a tent maker and make ropes and things like that from his dad. And even though he was an educated scholarly dude, he still learned how to, how to make just tents like a laborer, right? And so, so we, have, we have this calling. In, and when he says Paul, he says Timothy is like a son to me, what he's saying is he came under my wing and learned how to follow Jesus and learn how to plant churches like me. He learned from me as an apprentice, as my apprentice. I'm an apprentice, and he, you know, apprentice under me as the master carpenter, as the master journeyman in following Jesus. Where Paul had said in another verse, he says, Come follow me as I follow Christ. There's this idea that, that we're meant to be this family that works together. And, and we need to restore this right now more than ever of saying, like, let's work together. I, I, the, the, there's a verse, actually, I don't have time to read it right now. But in Titus, it talks to the older women. And it says to the older women, it says, look, older women. And I'm not going to define older women, by the way. I don't know how old that makes you have to be. But, uh, but he's saying mature women. You know, that could be 25, I don't even know, right? He's not saying because you have gray hair. But he's saying, hey, mature women in Christ, teach the younger women in Christ how to be mature in Christ. That's the way the church is meant to be. 
mature men and women are, are we're working together. It's no long, it's not like it's not like okay, we have children's ministry and we need to help do this together. And oh, and, and I've seen generational conflicts all the time in churches. Well, we need more from this generation or more from that generation. No, we're working together, right? We're communicating with one another. And this takes work on both sides because our American culture is not good at this. It takes the younger generation saying, hey, I need somebody to mentor me and help me out and be interested in learning how to be a better mom or dad, how to, how to, how to be better with my finances or whatever, how to walk with Christ, how to pray, so, and, and be able to seek out some older, older women or men in their life to do that. And it also takes the older men and women or mature men or women in the church to say, I'm, I'm going to be willing to inconvenience my time a bit to, to, to walk somebody. And by the way, apprenticing someone is a slow process. It's not like you read a book and then you're done. It's walking in life together, like a father and a son, like a, like a mother and a daughter. God wants us to function like that as a church. We might walk together, learning how to be like Jesus and live in his story. We need those people in our life. I, I have, I've had those people in my life. I don't have time to mention those folks, but I've been blessed to have many, many mentors like, like Josh talked about in my life, and I've praying for that as we move forward as a church that we'd keep growing at being this family that mentors one another and following Jesus. And not just, like, notice he said to those older women, he didn't say, just teach them how to follow Jesus. He actually specifically said, teach them how to be wives and mothers. Like, just teach them about life. It could be as simple as some, we have an epidemic of lack of, of, of people living in a, in a healthy family today. Over half of children will grow up in a broken home of some kind today right there's a lot and so what sometimes people need a mother or father to come along in their life a mother or father figure just to teach them how to cook how to have a dinner how to have a meal like come over and how to be a family and how to how to function how to how to raise kids they might never have had an example in their entire life they might have grown up with parents that were that were neglectful or abusive and then they have kids of their own and they've never had a parent who nurtured them and cared for them, and now they're trying to figure out as best they can how to nurture and care for a kid. This is what better way is for us to demonstrate the power of the gospel than to be the men and women who are out there in the world. I don't care if you're following Jesus or not, but you have a need for a mother or father figure in your life. I want to love you and gently walk with you through life. How better do we show the gospel of Jesus Christ than to treat people like family before they're even our family? Because Jesus taught us, treated us like family before we were his family. Amen? And finally, I want to think, when we look at Epaphroditus, it gets me thinking about what identity. Who, who are you in the story? Who do you think of yourself in the story? Paul actually rattles through several, kinds, like several titles for the way Epaphroditus behaves, like who he is. He says, Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker, and fellow soldier, your messenger, and minister to my needs. He uses, these, he uses these identity statements about who he is because we all live out of, the, of our identity, who we believe we are in the story, what kind of character I am. And, and, he's, and he calls him a brother. We've talked about this term. It's the, most, it's the most common term in the Bible for referring to Christians. The word Christian is not used very often. It's almost always the term is brother or sister. Why? Because we are family, which I mentioned. We would live like a family. Do you think of yourself like that? That who I am in this story is a family member with a whole lot of awesome brothers and sisters that are followers of Jesus. God wants you to start thinking like that 
that we're family, that we're going to live as family. We've been, try, we've been doing this, I say trying, because it doesn't always come out perfectly. But we do this in gospel community. We have meals together, and, we, and it's been, COVID has made it a hot mess, right? But, but it doesn't change the fact that in all kinds of ways, our church is saying, how can we be like family, even if that's a phone call right now, to brothers and sisters who are, who are, who are at risk, right? But we're going to love each other as family. He calls him a fellow worker. We've talked about this in previous weeks, that the gospel is hard work, but it is our work. Like all of us, we are, a, we, are, we, are, we, are, we are fully funded workers in the kingdom of God. You, live, you have a job, you have a pension, you have different things. That gives you the money you need, but that gives you the money you need to be a worker for Jesus' kingdom. And when you go to your workplace, guess what? That's a place you get to, to live for Jesus. And so all of us, we are, we are full-time workers in God's kingdom. It's not just me. We're all full-time workers in God's kingdom. You go work a job at Fred Meyer's. And you, and you work for Jesus. You go work a job as a mom that doesn't pay very well and doesn't have very good benefits. And, he, and, you, know, and, <laughs> and you work for Jesus, right? Like you, you have a pension, and guess what? That you have, and you get to serve Jesus through that, right? You, have, you get to go work at a fancy place like Intel, right? And be a, or you go get to work construction or work a trade. But all, in all of that, we are workers for Jesus Christ. We, we're saying, God, how can I serve your kingdom? He calls him a soldier, such a power, it's a, and it, that's a hard word for us in our culture, but he's not talking about, about a, a physical war. He's talking about a spiritual battle that we're in, that we're in a nonviolent struggle against spiritual beings that are at war with God. Whoa, that's a powerful image to get our head around. But there's spiritual beings at war with God, and God has called us into the battle, and we fight by resisting those powers, by, by being lights in a world, and the, and the darkness cannot overcome the light of Jesus Christ. But we recognize that there is a real struggle and that life isn't always going to be easy. Work's not always easy. Being a soldier isn't always easy. Sometimes there's hard work to be done. Sometimes there's, casual, there's, there's ways in which you're hurt, you're attacked, you come under temptation. You come under spiritual warfare, but God is coming. He's saying, look, we're together. The light will overcome the darkness. So let's get to the, let's get to the work. Amen? And I love the image. He calls him a messenger. Such, such powerful image. I wish I could preach a sermon on every one of these. Messenger is the word for being sent. It's the same word for apostle, or today we call that a missionary, which is, I have mixed feelings about that term, because we think of missionaries as the ones who go to Africa, but the Bible uses this term minister or apostle for all, in a lowercase kind of way, like not apostle, capital A apostles to write scripture, but lowercase a, sent ones, is used of all, of all Christians. Epaphroditus wasn't, his vocation wasn't being, he wasn't a, he wasn't like a traditional pastor in any way. He was a regular dude in the church. And he's called an apostle, a sent one, saying, everywhere I go, I'm sent to serve God and his kingdom. And then finally, he uses this powerful term, the end, for being a minister, which is what we'll close on. And that term for minister goes back to the Old Testament of being a priest. So God's, call, God's plan from the beginning was that he would have a people who would be a kingdom of priests. A, what does a priest do? It's kind of a weird spiritual term, right? A priest is someone who ministers to the Lord at the, at, at, in the temple, right, in the Old Testament, which is the place where God's glory would come. And so they're ministering to God, but they're not just ministering to God. They're, they're helping other people connect with God. They're ministering to the people and helping them have a connection to God. They, 
They minister literally at that intersection between heaven and earth, right? And they're helping people pass from the natural to the supernatural of going into the presence of God, being able to come and find forgiveness and find healing and find, and find connection from, with God. It's all, I mean, I go into all kinds of beautiful images of the temple. But what is he saying now? He's saying every single believer, we are all priests. We are a kingdom of priests. We all, we are now, the Spirit of God is in us. I feel another sermon coming on. <laughs> like we, <laughs> I'll stop. But I feel, we are, the Spirit of God is in us, and we are now, like, because the Spirit is in us, like, we are now the intersection between heaven and earth. You realize that everywhere you go, like, you go as a mini temple. What, what, and you go there saying, I am one who gets to minister. I am in the glory of God. I get to go into the Holy of Holies. I get to go into the very presence and know the glory of God. I get to minister to him and serve God. Say, God, how can I, how can I grow your kingdom? How can I know you, God? But I don't just do it for my own self to be like, oh, it's so good to be basked in the glory of God. It's awesome. No, I do it so that I can help other people find a place where they don't have the language to say, I'm sorry. They don't have the language to say, I don't know God. They don't have the language necessarily to say, I need love in my life and I feel empty. They don't know how to put words. This is what the priest did. They explained how to connect with God to the people, right? People don't know, they don't know how hungry they are for God. They don't know how empty they feel. They don't know how guilty and ashamed they feel. Why? Because if I were to talk about it, it would be real. And I, would, and I wouldn't have a way to overcome the shame. So I just push it down. And I go to the next thing. But what does the priest do? They, they're ministering the Lord. They're confident in the Lord. They found freedom. They found humility. And, they, and we go out into a world with people who don't even have the language to connect with God, who don't have any clue how to do it. So of course they do it in all kinds of the wrong ways. And of course, they say all kinds of things that aren't biblical. They don't know. And we don't go with any kind of superiority, any kind of judgment, any kind of like, I found Jesus confidence. We go with the humility of service. Let's talk about life. I've found, I've found how God has given me has fed me and healed me and forgiven me and loved me. And we just find ways to help people know that love and know that forgiveness. Find that healing. We find whatever way we can to serve people so that they might know the love of Jesus Christ. Do you see the awesome calling on every Christian's life? What do you want to live for? What story do you want to live in? How sad would it be to go around with the Spirit of God and the glory of God inside of us, with God telling us who we are, that you're children of God that are so beloved, and you're so, that you're so free that there's no shame and there's no guilt, and you can be completely vulnerable and real in the world. How sad would it be to go out there and live for some other glory and to live that out in a world that's so hungry for what we already have, but we keep it hidden. I pray as we come to worship and close today, you would feel a calling from the Lord to step into the story of Jesus. I pray for those who don't know you, Jesus. I pray right now you would help them 
to see that they are longing to be connected to someone who loves them, who created them, who knows them, who cares for them, who has died for them, who can give them forgiveness and healing and, and purpose. Lord God, I pray you help them to make through your spirit a connection to you today, Jesus. I pray for those of us who have been living and we, all of us, we're so prone to wander. Help us to find us, our way back to you, Jesus, today. And what it means for me today to walk with you and serve like you do, Jesus. I pray you would restore your church, Lord God, and, and, a, and a revival would happen in the church, not just in grace and glory, but all over Clark County in America, Lord God, where Christians are living as a kingdom of priests with, with confidence, without fear, without being afraid, without feeling lonely or lost, Lord God, but they would find their connection as we serve you, Jesus, together. Remind ourselves of how glorious it is to be a part of your church. And we find creative ways 